crying, it's because I just hit my toe. No other reason. That's why. Well, hey, um, we are still in the book of Daniel, and we are reaching Daniel chapter 8 today. So, meaning we are eight weeks into this series, and there are a few weeks left in this 12-chapter book. If you missed last week for whatever reason, um, you missed the transition we made from the first half of Daniel, which is largely narrative and a lot of Bible story reviews from our Sunday school years as kids. And as we have reviewed those stories, we've realized that a lot of them are kind of PG-13 or even R-rated um, as we've gone through them again. And now in cha uh, from chapter 7 last week up until now, and as we finish the book, things have taken a dramatic twist. They've turned from this narrative that we're very familiar with to the apocalyptic, to prophetic. And so things get a little weird, right? We start to look at dreams that Daniel had and these visions that God gave him of, of beasts and of animals and of all these different spiritual things. And apocalyptic is the literary genre that these books are in. And and as we've talked about, the word apocalypse, while most of the time when we hear that word, we think, okay, end of the world type thing. But we're remembering that the word apocalypse quite literally just means an unveiling or a revealing. That's why the book of Revelation is called Revelation. That's what apocalypse means. It means revealing. And so apocalypse and apocalyptic literature is not just about something that's going to happen in the future and this prophetic prediction of places and times and these things. But apocalypse literally means revealing. And as we remember what the Bible is about, the Bible is not so much about humans or about us, the Bible is about Jesus. And so what might the Bible be revealing? Jesus, right? Mind blown. And so as we look at this apocalyptic literature, there's an aspect of it that's you know predicting the future, that's telling us some dates, but there's also the main point, and that is to reveal something of God, to reveal something of Jesus, to unveil Jesus to us. And so as we talked about last week in chapter 7, um, it was this vision of the ocean swirling around and these monsters, these beasts were rising out of it. And we talked about how those monsters and beasts represented these successive kingdoms that were going to be in power in that region of the world at the time. And we use this metaphor or this analogy of like the big screen in a sports bar um, where, you know, there are usually a bunch of different games played on the bottom in these smaller screens. And then up above, there's typically one more important game that's played on the larger screen. And we kind of use this metaphor to talk about it because in Daniel 7, there's not a lot of timing lingo in here. And so it's likely that Daniel was seeing all this at the same time. And while he's seeing these beasts and these monsters down below, He's reminded that there's also this scene happening in heaven, that there's also God sitting over creation and judging these beasts and being sovereign over all of it. And so we talked about how the challenge for us is to be able to see the beasts, be able to see the world down here, and also be able to see what's up above on the big screen, what's happening in heaven, what God is doing. And in chapter 8 today, we read a very similar vision. In fact, I would say it's basically the same exact vision. It's like the same thing that we already saw in Daniel chapter 7. And I would even say it's then basically the same thing that we saw in Daniel chapter 2. This is almost like our third go-around of the same vision. If you remember Daniel chapter 2, that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he saw this statue. 
The statue was, was made of all these different metals, gold and silver and bronze, and those were representing these consecutive kingdoms. And then chapter 7 were these beasts that came out of the ocean, and they were also representing these same kingdoms. And then today we're also going to see another vision of these animals, and the animals are going to represent the exact same kingdoms. And it's a bit of a struggle because it's just repeating the same thing we already looked at. And we might be tempted to think, you know, okay, if apocalypse means revealing, God, what are you revealing to us? You already revealed this to us twice. Now you're telling us again? Especially because, I mean, the most interesting thing about prophecy is the future, right? Like, tell us some juicy details about the future. Don't tell us three times about these kingdoms that have already come and gone and these people that are already dead. But yet God is going to again reveal the same thing to us as we read chapter 8. And he's going to repeat this same thing for the third time, essentially. And now repetition is important. Okay, as kind of annoying and maybe sometimes as boring as it is, they say that repetition really is the key to learning. You know, you have to repeat something over and over again to get it to stick. I know Lena has to tell me things numerous times to get me to remember them. Repetition is the way that we learn, and oftentimes God uses repetition in the Bible in order to get us to remember something, to motivate us to action, and even to get us to see a different perspective. And especially when it comes to things as complicated as apocalypse or a lot of the messages in the Bible, typically things can have more than one meaning or meaning or more than one perspective. You know, the idea that Jesus will come again one day, it means a lot of different things. That's got a lot of meanings to it. It means that he's king over all creation and he's divine. It means that the earth will be made new and there will be a new earth. It means that we should serve him. It means all these different things just in that one message. And sometimes the Bible will repeat things in order just to get us to see that nuance and to be able to see that different perspective, to emphasize another aspect of this truth because there's multiple meanings in it. And so with that, we're going to see this again. We're going to see another perspective of the same vision. It's our third go around. And as we talked about with chapter 2 and the statue, that was Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. That was Nebuchadnezzar's perspective of these kingdoms that these kingdoms that are ruling the earth are like big and shiny and statues and they're really impressive and cool. And then in chapter 7, we saw these beasts and they were the same kingdoms, but it was God's perspective that they're not big and shiny and impressive. They're actually gross and monstrous and inhumane. And now in chapter 8, we're going to see another perspective that instead of valuable metals, Instead of scary beasts or monsters, they're just kind of these plain animals. Uh, just a goat and a ram fighting, which is just kind of what goats and rams do if you've ever been around them. And I think the perspective here is just the world's perspective. Or it's just the perspective that the screens down below are all that exist. That's all that's happening. There's nothing special about the kingdoms. They're not valuable metals. They're not scary spiritual monsters. They're just animals. And that's all there is. There's nothing more. And so I think what the big idea of chapter 8 is, and the challenge for us, the challenge is still to be able to see what's happening down here and what's happening in heaven. But I think what God provides for us here is despite all appearances, remember God is in control and he gives us what we need to be faithful in exile. And in chapter 8, 
What's happening is God is reminding us over and over again that he is with us, that he is there. And that's going to be the big idea. Daniel chapter 8 here. We see this third go around. The same vision, but God is trying to remind us over and over again, I am there. I am with you. So are you there? Did you have enough time to get yourself to Daniel chapter 8? Uh, we're going to read the whole thing. It's not too long. It's 300 words shorter than chapter 7, so if we get chapter 7, we can do chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 1. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll come back to talk about it when we're done. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the pro province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Eli Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and toward the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it with great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its great power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as a great commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one like a man, one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Eli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As I came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and I felt prostrate. We have an artist's rendition of, I think, what Daniel was feeling at that time here as he saw this angel come to give him a vision. Maybe not. That's okay. We can keep reading. Basically, he was freaked out. Daniel fainted. Um, if you can't read in the lines there. Daniel fainted, passed out. And while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. 
The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause the seed to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. He will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for seven days. Then I got up and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. There's a lot there. Now, here's the thing. With, with all the prophecy that's in this chapter... This chapter is very, very specific and actually includes a lot of things that actually happened after it was prophesied here. And I just want to tell you how specific this prophecy was and summarize with bullet points some of the connections between what was written here in Daniel chapter 8 and some of the things that actually happened. So a few bullet points just to kind of cover a bunch of it. That ram with two horns, one longer than the other, that was representing the Medo-Persian Empire. And the idea was that there was greater power under the Persians later, but just like one horn started out longer than the other, the Medo-Persian Empire started out long, started out more powerful. They did most of the conquering in the beginning, and then later on, the Persian Empire grew stronger, and it ended up just being the Persian Empire, not the Medo-Persian Empire, just like this horn represents. The goat with one horn that came with great speed, right? Always a lot of debate. Who's the goat? Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron? <laughs> Tom Brady? We don't know. Okay, it was actually Alexander the Great. So that debate's over, right? And Alexander the Great is this goat, and it says that it was flying, right? It's like it didn't touch the ground. Okay, that's just an idiom for he was moving fast. And when we look through history, that's what he did. He just moved fast. He struck cities without them knowing. That goat's one horn was broken off at the height of its power. And if we look through history, that's what happened to Alexander the Great. Right? He had just conquered the world. He was only 33, and then he died at the age of 33 at the height of his power. That one, goat, that one horn of the goat is replaced by four horns. Alexander the Great didn't have any heirs, and on his deathbed, he just said, I'm going to give my kingdom to the powerful. And then everyone was really confused at what to do, and they just decided they would give the kingdom to four generals that were already overseeing his empire. And so they became those four horns. From one of the horns comes one small horn that grows in power and moves south and east and towards the beautiful land. So this little horn, which is a, probably a really annoying nickname to have, to be that little horn, that was a general that came out of Alexander the Great's empire. That was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And just as this one little horn came to power and committed all these abominations, throwing some of the starry host to the ground, which was Abraham's descendants, right, the Jews, set himself up against God, took over Jerusalem, stopped all the sacrifices in the temple, just like it said. He set up a god to Zeus in the temple, sacrificed pigs all over the place just to make it a mess and to annoy the Jews. And all of this that was described in here, this guy Antiochus Epiphanes did. He killed a ton, and he basically did all the different things that were described there. And 
the period of time that he had desecrated the temple from the time he killed the high priest until the time that the sacrifices took place again was just over six years. If you're a math guy, you could figure out is that 2300 days, right? 2300 evenings and mornings because they do sacrifices in the morning and sacrifices in the evening. So they missed 2300 sacrifices and then the temple was reconstituted, like it says in verse 14. And then it says that the little horn would not die by human power, so no one would kill him. And then when we look through history, we see that Antiochus Epiphanes actually died of a bowel disease um, that was so infested by bugs and so smelly that it actually drove him crazy. That's a rough way to go. But that fulfills this idea in verse 25 that he wasn't killed with human power. And so all of this is very, very specific. Some would say it's a little too specific, Daniel. How did you happen to know all of this? And one of the things that people conclude then is that Daniel didn't know all of this. There's no way. There's no way he could have gotten all these details right. It must have been written later and just thrown into the books. Someone else must have written it. Because what's recorded is that Daniel wrote this in the third year of King Belshazzar, which would put us around 542 B.C. But yet, most of these things, especially um, Alexander the Great and the Medo-Persian Empire, that wouldn't happen for another hundred years, between 350 and 260. And then Antiochus Epiphanes, this guy that it was really specific about what he would do, he wouldn't come to power until 175 BC. But yet, everyone agrees these descriptions are really specific. They got a lot right. But how can that be? It must have been written later. No way it actually could have been written in 542. And at the start of the chapter, Daniel says he saw himself at the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. I was beside the Eli Canal. This is also pretty controversial because at the time when Daniel wrote this, 542, there was no citadel in Susa. That was the middle of the desert. There was no Eli Canal. There was the Eli River like 100 miles away, but there was no canal. So, just another one of these details. Seems a little too specific, Daniel. Seems a little too amazing, right? There's no way that he could have actually known this. And so I think our temptation then is to want Daniel just to fit in the bottom screen, right? Just to look at the bottom screens of what's happening here and to think, well, the only way Daniel could have known this <coughs> based on whatever could happen in the bottom screen. It seems like these specific prophecies and these predictions require something that would have happened on another screen, that would have happened up above on the main screen, and I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing a big screen. All I see is what's down here. And so a lot of people have a hard time accepting this. They say this is just too specific. God couldn't know all this. God wouldn't tell Daniel all of this. Daniel couldn't have heard all of this from God. I don't even think there is a God who would say all of this. So Daniel must be lying. Someone must have edited this out and put it in the book. And we try to make everything fit within this little bottom screen. There is a problem with that, of course, because if we're going to go based on bottom screen, one thing that we can remember or that we can look to is, you know, the book of Daniel was included in what's called the Septuagint. It's the oldest, some of the oldest copies of the Old Testament that we have, dating back between 285 and 270. The book of Daniel's in there, so at least we know, okay, we can push it 100 years before Antiochus Epiphanes. 
But there's also a story told by Josephus, the ancient historian, that when Alexander the Great was conquering the Middle East, he was moving towards Jerusalem, he was going to conquer that city, and one of the priests said, let me go talk to Alexander the Great, let me talk to him. And so they let him go out, they're like, all right, go talk to him. And the priest went out to Alexander the Great and he said, Alex, you're in the Bible. You were prophesied about. And he actually showed him the scroll of Daniel and read it to him. And Alexander the Great, it's recorded, was so moved by the fact that he was prophesied about, it's very flattering, right, that he didn't conquer Jerusalem because of that. He's like, all right, I'll let you guys go. And he moved on. And that took place in 332 BC, a long time before. So the fact that Alexander the Great had heard that, okay, it doesn't look so much like someone just edited it and stuffed it in. But nonetheless, whenever we see these things, it makes it hard to believe, right? But how can he have these unique prophecies? How can he know? How can he know? How can this fit in these small strings that we have? And we've been talking throughout this series about essentially being exiled. And it, that's a pretty dramatic description, I'll acknowledge. But the whole idea is that we're called to be citizens of heaven, right? To follow Jesus. And the fact of the matter is that in our culture, that's not the majority belief. That's not the way that most people operate. The norm is to assume that these bottom strings is all that there is. That there is no God. That people can't know these specific things. That God doesn't speak in these prophetic ways. And frankly, that's kind of the baggage we carry of just living in the culture that we do. To kind of doubt things that are this specific. And if we go back to that idea of the strings, the big string on the top and the little strings on the bottom, then we think there's no big string up here. There's no divine council. There's no courtroom of God judging everything. All there is is what you can see down here. Just a bunch of animals fighting. Just all of these things taking place. And someone's got to lie in order to get these things written down. And that's how we make sense of it. We make sense of it through that lens. And I don't think it's only like the secular non-Christian world that thinks this. I think a lot of Christians, we struggle with this as well. Especially as we are influenced by the pressures around us to say that there's nothing on the big screen up here. There's only what's God. And while most Christians haven't completely thrown out the idea that God does supernatural things, I think we can tend to de-emphasize those supernatural things and just to emphasize the things that we can explain, the things that do fit in the smaller strings. And I think a lot of us, even as Christians, we have a hard time seeing both strings at the same time. How can this be happening down here? How can, how can they cross? How can what's happening up here affect what's happening down here? How can that be? For all we can see is this earthly frame. And then I suspect, if that's the challenge for Christians who believe in Jesus, I suspect that there's also a bit of that temptation for some of us who might be in this room today who wouldn't yet call ourselves a Christian, who might say we're still kind of feeling it out, trying to figure it out. I think the temptation there exists as well to say, you know, all I can see is this earthly frame and this small picture, but I kind of get the sense that there's something else. I kind of get the sense that there's more, that there might be a bigger stream where other things are happening. I sure hope there is. I think some of us have that temptation. I hope there is something up on a bigger screen. And I think the perspective, if we can see it all, is that we could see that in the face of these animals fighting and these beasts and the suffering and the pain in the world, 
if we can recognize that there is more, there's more than just what we can see on the bottom here, then God could actually be with us, that what should happen up on the big screen can actually cross over and can be in this bottom screen, and that there actually can be more to just what's happening down here, more to the suffering, more to the pain, than just what we can see. But we have to recognize, hey, this is contrary to the cultural baggage that we carry, where this is all that there is. Especially when it comes to pain and suffering, right? Some bad things happening. This is all that there is, and that just stinks. Tough, tough luck. Because the cultural baggage we carry is that there isn't any meaning in suffering or pain. It's just kind of an obstacle and a lame thing, and hopefully one day we can figure it out and rid it. But there's no meaning in it. There can't possibly be anything good in that. And that's the baggage that we carry. But yet this vision that's given to Daniel is given to show him that there is in fact meaning in suffering. That suffering doesn't have the last word. That it won't last forever. That God's presence is still there. That even while this is happening, there's more happening that we can't see. And all of this is given to Daniel in this time to help to show him that he can live faithfully even in suffering and that even if this suffering is happening, one day it is going to end. One day it's going to end and God is still there even though these things are happening. The thing is this vision troubles Daniel, right? He's basically bedridden for a week, faints. It looks like he passes out twice, but he for sure faints one time. And if you remember, Daniel was a native of Israel. He was carted off to Babylon as an exile, and there's nothing he wants more than to go home, to go back there. And then he's peering into the distant future, and he's seeing his homeland, the place he wants to go so badly, and he's seeing it destroyed again. And he's seeing the pain and the suffering that's taking place there. He describes Israel as the beautiful land. And then the angel Gabriel tells him in verse 24 that this little horn, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to cause astounding destruction. And the history books confirmed it. And Daniel had to watch that happen. So it's no wonder he's a little worn out. I think he can take a break, take a few naps. And the question, I think, is raised that how does this really comfort Daniel? <laughs> how does it comfort us? And I think it's answered in this whole time, you know, as Daniel is watching this vision, he's wondering, you know, will the oppression ever cease? Will Jerusalem ever stop being conquered? Will my people ever stop dying? Will the pain and suffering that strikes humanity ever end? And will these beasts and these animals that are fighting ever be put in their place? Will this ever end? And then Daniel's given an answer, 2300. It doesn't really seem that helpful, like, hey, will suffering end? 2300. The angel had told him it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. And the historical answer to this is that from the time the high priest was killed until the time that it was reconsecrated and sacrifices were happening again, it took 2,300 evenings and mornings. But there's also some deep, symbolic, prophetic meaning in here to say that though 2,300 is a big number, it's a lot of days, and suffering will take place, it will have an end. It, it will be limited. It's a long period, but it's a limited period. That though these beasts rage and they fight, 
and these animals seem to just be causing chaos everywhere, God doesn't want Daniel to think that this is just the way it's always going to be, that it will have an end. But it is going to have its day. It is going to take place for this many years. And I think that is just God's grace in not letting Daniel be caught off guard. I'm not letting Daniel think, hey, this is going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be easy. It's all just going to work out. And God is pretty clear to us about this. All through the New Testament, time and time again, God is reminding us that there will be suffering. Suffering will have its day. These beasts will cause disorder and chaos and oppression in the world. And sometimes that's just the way it is. Sometimes it will happen because of our own foolishness. Sometimes it will happen because of our faithfulness. Either way, it won't be the last word. Either way, one day it will end. And this vision, this message, 2300, actually transforms the way that we experience pain and suffering today as we recognize that it does have an end. And one of the ways that I think this teaches us that is to remember that, that God can actually use our suffering. That God can actually use what the enemy, what these beasts, what these animals meant for evil, for good. Now you have to remember that Daniel was in exile because of Israel's unfaithfulness. This was essentially discipline to bring them back to faith in God. And I think this pattern in Israel's history shows us the reality that God will often heal our unfaithfulness with the suffering. That he will use it to bring us back to him. But he also uses that to show us the big picture, right? To show us what's happening. To show us that in that, he is there. This isn't just animals hurting us and God is detached. But God is actually here in it with us. And he uses our pain and our suffering to bring us back to him. Now, it was a few years ago I started growing an avocado tree just from a little pit from like a store-bought avocado. And I had these grand visions of these huge, this huge avocado tree in the backyard that would have, I guess we already see what mine did look like. Um, I had these visions of this big grand tree that was tall and lush and, and full of avocados. And so I was doing everything I could to get this thing to grow. I put it right in front of this big tall window that we had at our house, and I gave it lots of water, lots of sun, babied this thing. That other picture is not an actual picture of it. That's like the closest thing I could find to it. Mine was actually about 11 feet tall, but it was as skinny as a vine. <laughs> and really what happened, because I kind of babied it too much, um, when you learn about avocado trees, you learn that they are typically grown in coastal regions where there's a lot of wind, and they actually need that wind to dig deep roots and to stiffen up their trunk. And if they're just in a house in front of a window being babied, then they will just keep going up and up and up like a little vine. And if I'm going to have a big, juicy avocado, a little vine is not going to be able to support that. But nonetheless, that's what happened to my little tree or my little vine. And what you can actually do to simulate that is put a, like a fan next to it, and it'll cause it to actually grow deep roots, and it'll cause it to strengthen up. But I didn't do that in time. Uh, my sister's cat actually started using the pot as a toilet and killed my tree. But <laughs> that's another story. That's another story. Anyway, 
But with trees, not just avocados, but especially with them, is they actually need this wind. They need a little pressure to stiffen up and to grow roots. And in a very similar sense, God uses our suffering. He uses the pain and the hurt in our lives to grow our roots into him and to strengthen. And I think because of that, when we look at our pain and our suffering and things that are happening in our lives, anytime we see that, I know it's hard, but if following Jesus is difficult for us at the time, then we can celebrate that because we recognize that we're growing roots. That we are being strengthened. That our faith is growing in this thing. No wind, okay, there's not going to be much strength, not going to be much fruit. But if there is, then that's actually one of the main ways that God builds and forms us to send our roots deep and to strengthen us. That God uses our suffering. But of course, God doesn't just use our suffering. God has used someone else's, right? Jesus, right? God sent his son to this world to suffer for us, to live perfectly and faithfully, to die on the cross. And from his wounds, our faithfulness then is is healed. And so because of that, we don't bear all the consequences of our unfaithfulness. He took that upon himself. And it's through our faithfulness in him, not, not our own, that we're welcomed into the kingdom. And God has essentially overcome our faithlessness through Jesus' suffering and his faithfulness. And because of that, 2300, suffering will end one day. Suffering will end. In the book of Daniel, it's kind of like a cousin to the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible. Because what Daniel sees partly here and what's partly revealed to him, John actually sees a little more clearly in the book of Revelation. And he speaks to the end of suffering in chapter 21, where he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so God's dwelling place then becomes his people. And God wipes every tear from everyone's eyes. No more mourning, no more crying more pain, no more beasts flying amok everywhere, making all things new. And I think it's because of this that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so, we fix our eyes not not on what is seen, not what's down here, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so when we're tempted to think this is all that there is, that we can remember what's unseen, that there's this whole story being written, that there's God in control of it all, that there is going to be a day when all the tears will be wiped away and when everything, when everything is going to be made new. And the difficulty that we face is to be able to see all of that, right? To be able to see all of that at the same time believe that what is happening up here actually comes into play down here. 
There is actually meaning in all of this. And so that's, that's the discourse. And we see animals doing what animals do, and we're tempted to think, well, it doesn't fit down here. It must not be it. To believe that there is more. And again, I, I get the sense, and would you be reminded that that maybe if you're not a Christian yet, or maybe you have friends and family that aren't, and, and it looks like this is all there is down here, or you want to believe that there's more up here, but you just can't tell yet. Would you just look for those moments when, when it seems like there is more, when it seems like there's more going on than just what fits in these boxes down here. That there's more going on than you can see. And I think, I think we all get a sense of that. Regardless of how strong our faith is, we get a sense that there's got to be more, especially in pain and suffering. It can't just be pointless. It can't just be the result of these animals fighting. There has to be more. I think we can sense that. I think we can sense that in a lot of different ways. In pain and in happiness and in fun, too. Like, do you guys remember concerts? Remember those things? It happened a lot before COVID. Right? I had a friend who, she went to concerts every single weekend. I think she said she made it to some concert, like, every weekend for a year. She was really into like indie and techno and raves and everything. But she went to concerts every single weekend and every single concert was like the best concert of her life. It was like an experience with God every time she went. And she would come back and I'd be like, oh, that's right, you went to a concert. How was that? She'd be like, oh, it was amazing. It was so incredible. Like you would not believe what it was like. You, you wouldn't believe what happened. And I'd be like, was there music there? Like, <laughs> probably could believe it, you know? And she would just be so in awe and would enjoy it so much. And I think that's like the desire for more, right? The desire to recognize like, okay, me and my, like, uh, it's just me because it's just a concert. That's almost like little box thinking, right? <laughs> and she's thinking like, no, it's so much more. It's such a great experience. It's so amazing. And maybe you even feel this like in worship, like this morning when we sang oh, praise him, and you get a sense that, like, I don't think this is just the result of good music being played by an amazing musician and, you know, a good song that was written well, and it's just this, like, chemical reaction. But, yeah, who am I pointing to? I don't know. But, and you get the sense that there's more. And you start to get this weird feeling, like, I almost want to, like, lift up my hands when I sing. I don't know what that is. But <laughs> weird, I don't know. And you get the sense that you just want to scream out to God and you just want to praise him. That it seems like it's more than just singing songs together on a Sunday morning. And you get the sense that there might be more than just what we can see down here. And I think that's, that's our desire for more. That's our recognition that we can see there's more than just on the small frame. There's a bigger picture to be seen. And when it comes to suffering, that's the same way that we look at it. When we wonder, you know, what's the point? Is there more? The good news is that there is more. There is more. And the more is, of course, him. God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The reality that he is with us in our pain and in our suffering. That his presence is with us. And so when we experience these things and we have a picture of what's happening on the big screen, we can turn to him and we can say, God, I know you're there having a hard time seeing it right now, but I know you're there. Would you show yourself to me? Would you be with me in this? Would you show me what only you can see in these things that seem kind of pointless to me at the time? 
Now, Daniel had a pretty hard life. Um, if you remember Daniel chapter 6, which technically because of chronological order of Scripture is going to take place after this vision, but in Daniel chapter 6, he was thrown into the lion's den because of his faith, because he wouldn't stop praying. There was essentially nothing that would stop him from praying and being with God. And we have to remember that as an exile in Babylon, you know, he didn't have his Jewish community around him. You know, he didn't have a temple to go to and sacrifices to make. Most scholars think he didn't even have the Torah. All he had there was prayer and God's presence. And because of that, Daniel was desperate to turn to God in prayer. And Daniel was saying, I don't care if I get thrown into a pit of lions. I'm not missing my opportunity to praise God. I am going to be with God. It's all I have left. I don't have communion. I don't have the Torah. I don't have sacrifices to make. All I have is prayer. And so I'm going to lean into that. And sometimes when we face suffering, it can very much feel like that, right? That we don't have any answers. And I think the message of Daniel is, okay, well, we just lean into God in prayer. We lean into what we do have. And his presence is something that we will always have. And Winter's testimony was a beautiful reminder of that. That his presence in our lives is something we will always have. Even in exile, even in Babylon, even if we have wandered far away from him. God's presence is something that we do have. And we see in Romans chapter 1, I won't read the whole thing, but essentially Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that all of creation was made in order for us to have a place in the time to meet with God. That's the purpose of all this, is to be in his presence. And we see a repeated theme in the Old Testament prophets that despite the people's repeated sin, despite people wandering from God, God was still speaking to them over and over again, still sending another prophet, another prophet, another message, still speaking. And if you ever read the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel begins on his 30th birthday, which is the year he's supposed to become a priest, but he is far from the temple. He's far from doing what a priest should be doing. And he starts to think, well, this is it. This is kind of the end of my relationship with God. I'm going to be disconnected from him forever. I'm never going to be a priest. I'm never going to be in God's presence. That's what he thinks. And then God reveals himself to him and actually visits him when he is far off. And so Ezekiel then, if you read the book, he spends the rest of his life in close connection with God. He spends the rest of his life as a prophet of God. And the book of Ezekiel ends with Ezekiel declaring, Jehovah Shema, which means the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Because our God is a God who is there. He is there for us. And when all we can see is what's down here, we're reminded that he is there. He is still there. We can't see it all the time, but he is there. And he's inviting us to act on that faith of, of trusting in his presence, even when we can't see it. That he is a God who is there. And you just remember the reality that God made creation, and he made Adam and Eve. And after Adam and Eve sinned, and they were separated from him, did he just leave them there forever? No, he like came back. God came back to the garden. Adam and Eve were hiding from him, but nonetheless, he was still there. And then he continued to do this for his people all throughout history. That whenever they would sin, he would still appear to them. When Moses was on the run for his sin, God appeared to him. When Abraham, 
and Joshua and all the same. And then Jesus finally came to to all of humanity to be God with us. And then said, my presence will never leave you. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. And we just celebrated Pentecost last week. It was in the middle of a tornado warning, but we were here. (laughs) Because God was reminding us that my presence will never leave you. It will be with you. And that's what we have. We have a God who is with us down here. The one who can really only fit on a screen that big, and it doesn't seem like the two can cross, actually can. And he is with us down here. And we see it. And I think we sense it. And there are these moments of time when we wonder, and when we hope, I hope there's more, I hope he's in this, I hope he's present in this. And we can, we can know the reality that he is. That he is with us. We have a God tells us over and over and over again, I am there. I am with you. God has to repeat it, but I'm thankful that he does. That he is here. And the reality is that God wants to be known. He wants to be known by us. He wants to be with us. And when we walk in pain and suffering, he doesn't just stand off at a distance and say, well, you come up to me, figure out a way to get up to me and hike up here. He comes down to us. And so while it seems so difficult to think that something from the bottom possibly involves what's up here, it does if he's the one who comes down to us. And that's exactly what has happened. And so because of that, we have a God who is there. And in our pain and in our suffering and whatever is happening in our world when the animals are fighting and it seems like chaos, we can remember that there's more happening than we can see and that God is in fact. Would you bow your heads and pray?